Okay, we are in John chapter 5. We're going to be ending chapter 5 today, I believe. So we're going to be going 33 through 47. 33 through 47, chapter 5. All right, I'm going to read through this real quick here, and then we'll, we'll do some talking about this. So, starting at verse 33 here, it says, uh, You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified about me. And you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Also, you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe him who he sent. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would, have believed, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But you do not believe his writings. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, we're going to look at this real quick from a contextual explanation of what this means when he's sitting there talking to these Jewish leaders, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to, to our life. So the contextual explanation here, which is fairly simple, but the, these leaders, as we saw in the earlier verses, the other, earlier chapters of John, they had sent people to John the Baptist to inquire of him. And what did he end up doing? He testified of Christ. So these leaders, they knew of John. They had heard what he had been saying. But they were ignoring, and Christ was saying that they needed to think about, they needed to believe in what John had said about Jesus. He calls John a lamp, some, something who burns and shines. And this was a good picture of John because lamps aren't permanent. They eventually run out of oil. They don't give their own light. So John had this warmth. He was a guiding light for people to repentance, and he was leading them to God. But as John had talked about, his lamp was going to burn out. So John was going to decrease, Jesus would increase. But these people, for whatever reason, they were willing to rejoice for a little while in what John had been saying you got to remember that they wanted physical rescue from the Romans. They, didn't, they weren't looking for a spiritual rebirth. But Jesus said, 
that he had a testimony that was not from man. He didn't need John's testimony. If he, he, had, he had his works, which were from the Father, and they testified of him. He went around and we see in the Gospels how he does these, these, these compassionate acts of mercy for people. And a lot of times they're just from needy people in the streets, right? They are not always these high rulers. We see that very rarely. But Jesus didn't fit their idea of a Messiah because they needed somebody militarily and they needed something, somebody politically. Jesus was not fitting that, and so they were rejecting all these witnesses of Christ. Now Jesus said His Father testified of Him, but because they did not have His Word remaining in them, they were not going to believe it. God the Father testified of Jesus in the Old Testament. He spoke at the baptism of Jesus, if you remember in the early chapters there. In Luke uh, 3.22, it says, The Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are My beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. They examined the Scriptures for eternal life but they couldn't see eternal life right in front of their face. They read them. They revered them. They used them as arguments to support some very bad scriptural positions. But they searched them for salvation. What they couldn't see was that, the, that belief on Jesus would be the ultimate understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures which they had at that point. That's why Jesus said, and yet you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. He wasn't telling them that they needed a priest. He wasn't telling them that they needed sacraments. He said that in Him was salvation, but they wouldn't come. This is a classic example of how you can be in the Scriptures all day long and you can still perish. That's what was happening with these religious leaders. Jesus, by faith, is the keystone for all of it. That's what Christ is telling us here. But He tells them that the very words of Moses, the Bible that they had at that time, was condemning them. There's types and shadows that are seen in the Old Testament of Christ. They didn't have the spiritual discernment apparently to see those things. Like in Deuteronomy 18.15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like, like me from among you, from your countrymen, to him you shall listen. And then what we covered this maybe two or three weeks ago, but in, in Numbers 21, 8-9, Moses makes that, that serpent... It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So he had this bronze serpent made and put on a flagpole and people looked to it to save them. Another type of Jesus. There's other examples in the Old Testament, but it doesn't matter because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it no matter how much they were in it. And he said that if they wouldn't believe Moses' words then they weren't going to believe His words in front of them. So what of the application for us today? 
There's a supply for, for modern man, for God's call to him, for the witnesses that we receive in our life as we go about. So we have the testimony of others as Jesus was talking about. We most certainly have the testimony of others. In fact, we have more of the testimony of others than they had because we have more history going on. We have 2,000 years just since the, Old Test, uh, since the New Testament started. So sometimes we see some of these testimonies that are mighty and powerful, and then sometimes we see more humble scenarios. Sometimes they are just scenarios where, they, where we see maybe just how God works. We see this particularly in Israel at that time. So if you remember, uh, I think it's in Matthew. I don't remember the chapter. But Jesus tells his disciples, they're, they're walking about, and they point to the temple, and they're talking about you know, how great it is. Look at the temple there, Jesus. And he tells them that not one stone would be left upon another of this temple. This was the second temple that was there. So he tells them that this is going to happen, and then we have a witness in history that says, God said he was going to do this, God, God did this. So there's a Roman historian, a Roman Jewish historian. His name is Josephus. Um, he recorded a lot from the Roman Jewish war that happened between 66 and 70 AD. Okay, So before the war had started, there was, there was signs that God was going to follow through on what Jesus had said right there. Of ending... Israel as a place of worship for Christians, for everyone, because you could go anywhere to worship, of ending the old covenant Israel. So one of those things in his writings, he talks about the east gate of the inner court of the temple. Okay, This is one of the, one of the gates that would be there to secure the temple. And it was made of brass. It was huge. It was heavy. And it took... 20 or so men to shut this gate because that's how heavy it was. It was fastened with deep, huge bolts that went into the, into the stone floor. And they had a sign before the war started. In the middle of the night after they had secured this, somebody walks by and the door is open. Nobody knows how it happened. But those who were kind of catching on thought, this might be a sign that the holy house is no longer going to be secure here anymore. Another thing, later, after one of their feasts in the region there, everyone was gathered out. You know, it's, it's kind of a big, big thing when there's a feast in Jerusalem. And many people witnessed in the clouds around the region, they saw soldiers and they saw chariots giving out orders and running around like marching, getting ready for war around the region of Jerusalem. And then, later, there was a time recorded by Josephus where the Jewish priests, they go into the temple and they feel another quake, kind of like when, when Christ was on the cross. They feel a quake, they hear a loud, massive noise, and they hear a multitude say, let us remove hence, as if God was leaving the temple. So lastly, there was a man recorded 
His name was Jesus, son of Ananias. Different Jesus. Four years before the war began, he began just suddenly out of nowhere to cry day and night. He would cry out a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, and a voice against this whole people. So he was going around and he was doing this day and night, and he was probably annoying everyone. Going about the city, during the festivals, anytime. And so they would whip him. They would call him crazy. They took him before the Roman leaders at that time, and they whipped him so bad that you could see his bones in some spots. They really tried to punish him. And all he would say was, Woe to Jerusalem. And then he would continue his other saying again. And then... The city was finally surrounded during the Roman-Jewish War. They were surrounded by the Roman army. They were sieged for at least four years. And he's on the wall, on the outer wall of the city, and he's crying this cry again. And he says, he says, Woe to the city again, and to the people, and to the holy house, and woe to myself also. And then he was crushed by a stone from one of the siege engines that had breached the city wall. And it wasn't long after this that Jerusalem would fall. The temple would be torn down. Upwards of 1.1 million, Josephus estimates, would have died in the city during the siege. A lot of them died, not necessarily from warfare, but just from starving to death. It got so bad that, that people were eating their children, and they have records of that. So God said He was going to tear this temple down, and we have a witness in history, that when God says He's going to do something, He does it. Now, people can debate exactly what that event meant. Uh, there's, there's different people that will say different things about that. They all have good arguments. But what I just wanted to bring across is that there's no denying that God said He was going to do this. People didn't listen. They could have got out of there. And He did it. So, We have great testimonies from history, from Scripture, from believers. But the ones from believers today, these are the most powerful in our lives because we can look back and we can see that God did what He said He was going to do. But the thing that really helps us is when we see God change people. Every time you speak to somebody who, who has come to Christ and has changed, they have this repentance, they're resting in Jesus Christ, that's a great witness. Every healing that you see, every intervention of the Lord, these are things that didn't stop in the first century. They continue on. And we pray that they would reach an unhardened heart. So Jesus says, though, that the Father testifies of Him. That's still true today. God shouts to us all the time in the act of creation, the fact that we exist the creation itself, when you go out amongst nature and you see what God has done, when you look at the astronomical chances that life would exist, it can only come from a Creator. Now God also witnesses though, as we'll get to later on, in John 16, He speaks of the Holy Spirit. Where He says, but I tell you the truth, It is to your advantage that I am leaving. This is Jesus speaking. For if I do not leave, the Helper will not come to you. 
<clears throat> but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, and he, when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment, regarding sin because they do not believe in me, and, are, and regarding righteousness because I am going to the Father, and you no longer are going to see me. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is constantly speaking to us. There's a story of, of uh, somebody who went to see one of Billy Graham's mobile ministries. This man, his name was Mike. He said, he said, I'm at the end of my rope when he went to these ministry people. A 78-year-old Vietnam vet, he had stopped at this mobile ministry in Louisiana and he asked for a prayer. His wife was terminally ill. And he told a story about his, the losses he had had in his life. And how hopeless he felt. And the chaplains, just like I believe, that the Holy Spirit was at work in him. Because they used the Scriptures. And they shared with him about sin and salvation. As well as the, the hope and the comfort in Jesus Christ. And this, and this man broke down in tears. He knew he needed Christ in his life. He prayed to repent of his sins. He surrendered to the Lord. And then he asked for them to pray for his wife. This man doesn't sound like somebody who would have just randomly stopped at a place like this. This had to have been God working in him, telling him to just randomly stop at this, this mobile ministry. God was working on him. Jesus said that, he had, that they had the Scriptures speaking of Him. Well, if they had the Scriptures speaking of Him, how much more do we have? <clears throat> Excuse me. They only had the Old Testament. We have all of the New Testament now. And unlike what the cults say, we have good, we have accurate translations that are available to us. They're worthy of reading. They're worthy of attributing to the Lord as His Word. And they're able to lead us to eternal life. <clears throat> I want you to I want you to listen to something here. I want you to listen to this and, and think about this for a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Especially you young people sitting in the pews, okay? You're not going to fully understand this, but I want you to listen, okay? This is hard to, hard to comprehend. <clears throat> so in 150 years from now, all of us in this room, we're going to be dead and buried, okay? Long time. There's going to be strangers living in your house, people you don't know. Someone else is going to have all of your possessions. Everything that you went through your life trying to attain, Somebody else is going to have those. So the rest that they don't have are going to be given away, maybe destroyed. People that you don't know are going to be in your family line, and they're going to not know who you are, most likely. Most of us don't know who our grandfather's father was, something like that, right? Very few cases do people actually have something where they know them. 
So after we die, decades later, you're going to be a portrait on the wall somewhere. Give it a few more decades, that picture might not even be up anymore. Another generation, it'd probably be gone. Might be at Goodwill somewhere. Nobody's going to know who that guy is. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Does anybody know what nihilism is? You probably won't know it by name, but you'll know it by theory when I say it. So, nihilism is the belief that traditional values, that traditional beliefs, that ex are, these are unfounded, that there's no reason for them, that existence is senseless and useless. That's what nihilism is. There's no reason for us to be here, and eh, whatever. When you read a scenario like this, thinking about us and our stuff 150 years from now, I kind of see where there's two major perspectives that you can come across. One is nihilism, where none of it matters anyways. And the other is an eternal perspective. If you come away with this with nihilism, it's going to destroy who you are. You're going to be one of those people who live by the moments, doing whatever makes them happy. And you're not going to realize that not only does what you do echo in eternity, as they'll say in the movies, but it ripples into your life now. Because if you live like nothing matters, you're going to rub off on the people that you love like that. You're going to possibly change some people's minds into a mindset like that, dooming them as well. Because you don't feel like taking the time to think about, does God really exist? Does he really work in my life? So your views, the way you live, will affect everything around you. Like I said, in nihilism, it's not going to matter what decisions you make because you're just going to die anyways. It'll all be over. Nobody's going to remember. It's all right. But the worst part about nihilism is not any of those things. It's the fact that it's not true. That's the worst part of it. You see, God is witnessing in many ways that He exists, like we just talked about, through creation, through His Spirit. He wants us to come to Him. But God, He doesn't give us absolutes. Things are not... These, when I say absolutes, I'm talking about these things that are true no matter what we think about them. God exists, and so these absolutes exist because of Him. Because God is good, there is good. Because God is long-suffering, merciful, that He has justice, there is such things as those. If you don't have God, those things don't exist. So God exists because His Word is true and we can trust it. And 1 Thessalonians 1.5 talks of His Word. It says, For the Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This means that God's Word can change you, can make changes within you. The Holy Spirit does this. It's not just an elementary thing where we're playing church and thinking about that. We're doing a ritual. Because if that's the case, it doesn't do anything. It's no different than the nihilism. So these are important things for us to think about.
These are why these witnesses that Christ talks about are so important, because we can choose not to listen to them. We can choose to try to ignore them, put our blinders on. And for those of us who do believe, it does not take a Billy Graham to present this to people. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2 talks about this. Where Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Plain and simple. He just talked about Jesus to them. So if you know Jesus changed your life, we have to tell someone. You have to tell them what was required. Faith. Faith on Jesus. So there's no denying when we look through the history, when we look at the Scriptures, when we talk to people who who have had these encounters, that there are many witnesses of Christ today. And it's just ours to rejoice in them, to rest in Christ, and to proclaim them to everyone we encounter, whether it be people in our family, our children, our wife, our parents, or people that we encounter at work. As the Spirit leads you, you should be sharing Christ. These witnesses are real. 